You've heard this this uh, new, what's called a rule, a restriction. It's a travel restriction. All travelers, including Canadians, five years of age and older, have to produce a negative COVID test that has been uh, done within 72 hours of boarding the plane. Uh, and that begins on Wednesday, the 7th. And you still have to quarantine the 14 days, which has been the case uh, from the outset. So I'm concerned about that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that everywhere you would go, you can readily get a COVID test. I know if you go to the States, you can buy one in the drugstore. But I also know that a lot of those tests are $149.95. It occurred to me that if you really wanted to do this and you wanted to make sure that everybody was covered, why don't you have a big supply of the, uh, the spit tests? You know, they're like a pregnancy test, except you don't pee on them. They're just spit tests. You spit in a tube and it turns red or green. If it's green, you go. If it's red, you don't. So the red ones, back in the plane. <laughs> the green ones, off you go to customs. I mean, that's just me, a non-medical guy, musing aloud. Martin Firestone is president of Travel Secure. What do you think of that idea, Martin? I, I think it's great. <laughs> Having said that, they are requiring a PCR test. And I'm not a doctor, but... It is far from the spit test, and that's where the problem lies. Some countries may not have this PCR test available, and then you've got a problem. Okay, so that test that you're talking about, PCR, maybe it's PRC, I can't remember, but we know what we're talking about generally. That's the yeah. same test that you would go and get if you called the number and said, I have a couple of symptoms. They'd say, book the test, go to this facility. And that's Correct. the same test. That's the one that takes 24 to 48 hours. So that's an issue for a traveler. And that's why they're saying you do it before you get on the plane, and that way you arrive with the results. Well, does everywhere have that test available, everywhere you could be? Like, I know people going to Mexico. I know people going to the U.S. where they do have it, but maybe not everywhere. There are people yeah. going to the islands. Maybe they don't have it there. I don't know. You know. that That's the fear. I mean, they haven't come out with a list yet where the, the advice they're giving you is check the location you're going and see if that test is available. So they're putting the onus on you. But, of course, the big thing here is, and I don't know if you've mentioned this yet, if it can't be done or it doesn't exist, they'll let you on that plane. But then when you land, you will then be put in a 14-day quarantine in a federal facility is what they call it. Do we know what those federal facilities are? Is that those camps they were building? It sounds like Alcatraz to me. I have no yeah, idea. You're going up the river, man. <laughs> I suspect it is a abandoned hotel. When I say abandoned, I mean a hotel on the airport strip that is not being currently used. That they yeah, they're all abandoned, Martin. That's true. So then if that's the case, we can go to the Four Seasons. But no, I suspect it's, it's down some airport strip, and that's where you go for 14 days and three square meals and anything else that comes with it, I guess. And, you pay, and you, I bet you pay for it, too. No, I bet you pay for it. I bet you and I both pay for it. It's you mean you taxpayer. think this is the taxpayer is going to pay for people coming into the country without a test? I do. I do. Oh, my God. I was going to ask you that question, and now we've got it answered. Look, it sounds like we're a couple of jokers are making light of this. This is not funny stuff. I want to know, first of all, Will, if you're insured to travel outside the country. Like when I go, I have insurance, and my insurer will pay for certain things. I've never asked, would you cover the cost of the test? And I don't know. Do you know? I do know. The answer is absolutely no. You will not be covered for the test. It is not an unexpected medical emergency. It is something you could say was elective, but it's not really. It's compulsory. But having said that, I know from each insurer that I deal with currently right now, they have all said the cost of the test will not be covered. 
I've heard that the uh, the cost in the United States, so if you're, I don't know, in one of the warmer places, I don't know, Louisiana, Texas, uh, certainly Florida, maybe in California, although I don't know why you'd want to go to California right now. It's a disaster zone. That said, those tests are about 140 bucks. That's the problem. You've got a family of five that's sitting in the Dominican right now, and even if that test is available there, five times $150, and then they're flying back, and you hope that the person who is greeting you at the airport, who, by the way, is the gatekeeper, that is the one that is going to say to you yay or no. And that's a real problematic scenario. But talk about a cost. And it can't be older than 72 hours. So if that flight got delayed or there was a problem, you may not be getting on it. That's true. How do you find out whether the country where you are, if there are people, there are people who listen to us using the Internet and, uh, you know, they're lying on the beach in some sunny aisle, St. Bart's maybe, uh, and, and they're listening to us right now and, uh, and they're wondering if their country can provide the test. How do you find out if a country you're going to has the required test? Someone's got to create this list, uh, and it doesn't exist as of this point. Someone's even got to tell these people who've been out of Canada since this was introduced only about five days ago that when you come back Wednesday morning at 12.01 a.m., you better have that test. Well, not even when you come back, when you board that plane in your destination. So I think there's going to be mass confusion with people going, I didn't even know about this. And they'll go, you know what? Back of the line for you, you've got to book another trip, another uh, airline, three days from now and go back and get your test now. So that's going to be a real mess, too. So you, you literally, you can be, I don't know, let's pick a place. You can be in Barbados. A lot of Canadians like to go there. You can yeah. be not paying attention to Canadian news because, hey, you're in a place that has less COVID. You're sitting on the beach. The water is turquoise. You're drinking banana daiquiris. What do you care until the day before and you have to reconfirm the flight or whatever you have to do? And they yeah. say, be sure you have your test with you. And, yeah. and a lot of people are going to go, Test? Yeah, that's going to be a problem. So I suspect maybe the airlines have sent out emails to everyone. Again, this is just me uh, suspecting, advising that if you have not heard already, you need to provide a negative COVID uh, PCR, PRC test uh, upon arrival in order to get onto the plane. So that's catching that group of people. So different countries, let's suppose you can, you know, you're in a country where you can get this particular test that's required. Yeah. Uh, but maybe they don't issue a certificate. Maybe you phone for your results. How do you? How do countries even know, or how do you know, how to secure something that the airlines are going to see as valid proof? It, it's a great question. I suspect that even leads to where there could be counterfeit um, authorizations. So you, you, you just don't know what you're doing. I mean, you absolutely are in the hands of someone who's going to look at this on your phone, maybe on a piece of paper, and then you hope that they accept it as being valid. And that's going to be another problem to add to the list. And this is such a load of crap, you know. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, that just came out, and I, I don't take it back. But what I mean is, go ahead, spring it on us. It's effective Wednesday. You made plans two weeks ago. You're somewhere else. Maybe you're leaving for somewhere else, and you have no idea if in the somewhere else you can get the test and come back properly. This, uh, this seems to be some kind of a government response to the fact that a lot of people are making making a racket about the airports uh, having remained open for the entire duration. And who knows how many tens of thousands, indeed hundreds of thousands of people have walked into our country, some of them COVID positive, some of them with the variant, some of them spreading it uh, that uh, that infected us. If they'd closed all the airports in February and then taken stock, we probably wouldn't be in the pickle that we're in. You're 100% right. 
The other problem is they're still asking you to quarantine 14 days after you land with the negative COVID test. So what is, what's been accomplished is another layer, as they call it. And uh, a lot of people are having issues from my perspective. They have, you're telling me I still have to quarantine after I provide them with this negative COVID test? And the answer is yes, you do. Well, I mean, I could live with that, but I'm, I, I talked to somebody today who's a snowbird, has been staying here, as I have, because I'm one of those, um, right through the piece, and he says, we're leaving on Wednesday. So I said, well, you know, Godspeed. He says, we already phoned. You can book an appointment and get the test. They don't. It's not a question of Canadian or American. If you're down there, yeah. um, you, you can get the test. So they're going to get the test, uh, not the test, the, no, the shot while they're there. If you have the vaccine and you can provide a vaccine certificate, you still need the test? Yes, Again, that, that's just part of this way it's been presented. They aren't specifically telling you what. But I think the biggest story is what you just said. People are physically leaving Canada, head down to Florida now to get the vaccine, to move themselves ahead of the line, which could be summertime. That's a whole other story into itself. Boy, I tell you, it just changes every day. Call it a moving target. I wish we'd move with the vaccines here. I wish that they'd take vaccine certificates from there, wherever there is. But uh, all of these things are like everything else that's happened since COVID. It's a moving target, and uh, we only get it together after we see what the results are. And I wish everybody coming back uh, Godspeed and hope you get back in the country uh, within a reasonable delay once you get to the airport and find you don't have the right paperwork. Martin, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, with us to talk a little bit about uh, things we're even now just finding out about getting out of the country and then, oh my goodness, getting back in. Michael Hurley joining us, president of Ontario Council of Hospital Union, Unions of QP. Going to talk a little bit about uh, long-term care homes. That is huge in the news, as you know. Uh, QP, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, is speaking out very particularly the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, which is a division of QP, and uh, they're calling on the Ontario PC government to ramp up long-term care reforms. Now, now, this is not new. There are a lot of people doing that. The issue is how fast can you do what you need to do? Uh, st standard of care is one of the things. Increased staffing. They call it lethargic and inadequate, and uh, QP has joined other advocates urging military in intervention, so the Army, to curb the COVID-19 wave that... Uh, is certainly, again, can be said to be sweeping long-term care facilities. I'm going to give you a quote, and then we'll have a, a spokesperson for QP on with us. We are tragically losing the battle to protect long-term care residents. The homes and staff are on the verge of total crisis and collapse. This is coming from uh, QP's Ontario Secretary General, Candace Rennick, uh, and she goes on to say the military assistance is just temporary uh, as a solution to the worsening crisis caused by the government's failure to implement immediate and meaningful reforms needed months ago. This kind of crisis cannot continue to be met with half measures by the province. Joining us on the line is Michael Hurley. He is president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. I don't think anybody who's uh, thinking straight could possibly say that this is anything um, short of a disaster in the homes. It's a tragic, tragic situation. Okay, so we know that it's a tragic situation. I think people of all stripes can agree that it's a tragic situation. Here's the thing that bothers me. Uh, there are people who, because he's the guy in the firing line, are pointing the uh, the finger at, uh, at Doug Ford, and, and he's the guy who has to take it. But you know what? In Quebec, they're pointing it at Francois Legault. In BC, they're pointing it at uh, Premier Horgan. In the States, they're pointing it at uh, pick a governor. It, it, this, is, this is everywhere, and it, it lends proof to the fact that this particular uh, disease 
is much more likely to wreak havoc on congregate facilities and no less so than the ones that house our most precious citizens, the people who can least defend themselves, the seniors. Where have we been on this? Because this is this didn't start with COVID. COVID has just shone a great big spotlight on it. This started years and years ago. Well, I mean, COVID has taken 2,800 lives of residents in long-term care, as you know, and now yes. nine, nine, nine staff, another died yesterday, um, have, have succumbed to, to COVID. And, I mean, there's some reasons for that. One is related to the very uh, low level of staffing in these facilities and with uh, rising rates of illness, um, you know, there are fewer and fewer people uh, to provide the basic needs for these residents. So they are they are suffering. They're not being fed properly. They're not being, uh, you know, they're not being uh, provided with enough uh, hydration, et cetera. And another, another problem is that we did not accept a lesson we perhaps should have learned from the first phase of COVID, which is we continue to insist that the people who have COVID in long-term care should be cared for in the same institution as people who don't have it. And with an airborne virus, which uh, there was a large group of academics today calling on the federal government and the premiers to acknowledge it's an airborne virus in, a, in an institution with poor ventilation, which is most of our long-term care facilities, these people are extremely vulnerable. Well, you know what's interesting, Michael? The Green Party is holding a town hall meeting, I think right now. Uh, it's underway. We're going to try to talk to somebody from that party later. But um, they're saying that this uh, is of such crisis proportions across the country that the federal government should step in and put an end to for-profit long-term care homes. Are you somewhere in that sphere? Well, I mean, yes, absolutely. Three-quarters of the deaths that have happened in Ontario, uh, and I think nationwide, have happened in for-profit facilities. And, the, you know, the, the sad truth is that, um, you know, those facilities uh, took, uh, you know, significant uh, return for their shareholders during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And they they necessarily spend less on staffing, nutrition, and in other areas in order to be able to uh, be viable as, you know, as profitable companies. So, yes, we would agree that that uh, that the, the COVID crisis has really underlined the extent to which seniors who are already vulnerable and to a, to a large extent neglected uh, fare very badly in, in for-profit facilities. And I don't think that that's a... That's a um, ideological point of view on I think that that's based upon a, a lot of evidence of which the the huge number of deaths uh, in this latest wave are just unfortunately further evidence well you, you have some numbers in material that you supplied me and uh, I'll just read this line back to you you're very familiar with it there are currently 187 homes in outbreak with 1186 positive residents 1,050 positive staff, 2,749 residents have died. Eight of the 15 Ontario healthcare staff who have died have died in long-term care. So this is, uh, I won't say predominant, but it's a very dominant, if not the largest single sector that is identifiable as a group that have perished or been terribly uh, sickened by this illness. This says something. Have you had any communication directly with the Minister of Long-Term Care? 
Well, uh, not with the Minister of Long-Term Care, but with the, you know, with staff of the ministries, of course, uh, ongoing, ongoing over the course of the, of the pandemic. I think when you look at those numbers, I mean, what's really instructive is to look at the countries where they have almost no deaths of seniors in long-term care. They're, they're doing things differently. And we're not learning any lessons from, from those countries. And, and so having had such a terrible toll in the first wave of COVID, we should not condemn uh, these residents and their families to live through this a second time. There's lots we could be doing differently, like not forcing them to be cohorted together, people with and without the virus, and ramping up staffing. And and that's why we called for the military to be brought back, because we are deluding ourselves if we if we try to pretend to the public that things are going well in long-term care. They're not. The, the level of illness and death there is simply unsupportable in a wealthy country like Canada and in a wealthy province like Ontario. I've got to tell you, at this point, having uh, been witness, as were you, to the first wave and what the military were able to do and what they were called upon to do, I can't see any reason why we wouldn't be calling upon them one more time. They can, they can do the work. They know how to do the work. And we need the Michael Hurley. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Michael Hurley, president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. And the opposition in Ottawa is speaking out about this whole business that's being... I don't want to say thrust upon us, but it kind of is because here it is Monday the 4th. This is the first day you're considering work and uh, the the regular work-a-day world that we all live in. And Wednesday, we have a new rule that really is facing all of us as we leave the country and try to return. Whether we're Canadian and we're out of the country now, whether we're Canadian and pl- uh, planning on leaving the country and coming back, uh, who, who knows what, uh, what will happen except this. As of Wednesday, whoever you are coming into Canada, you will have to have some kind of proof that within the prior 72 hours, you have received a test that tests negative, and it's a particular kind of COVID test. And the opposition is speaking out about this in the persons of uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, who's the Shadow Minister for Health, and Peter Kent, who's Shadow Minister for Employer Workfor- Employment, Workforce Development, and Disability Inclusion, and Pierre-Paul Hoos, uh, Shadow Minister for Public Services and Procurement. Peter Kent is on the line. I know you're from Thornhill, Peter. <laughs> and I'm in Thornhill. I know. I know. I used to be, too. Happy New Year's to you, uh, yeah, cousin. We are cousins, although you, like me, are leaving public life very soon. And, uh, well, we don't know how soon, but one of these days. Uh, nice to have you on the program, and Happy New Year to you, too. Well, it's a, it's a, always a pleasure to chat with you, Peter. And, uh, yes, this is a big story in so many different ways um, regarding the the sudden announcement. After after months of the opposition calling for, for uh, checks at, uh, at the airport with regards of testing in Canada at the airport, uh, and we saw it rolled out uh, preliminarily in, uh, in Alberta. The government last week, between Christmas and New Year's, uh, dropped this, uh, this surprise announcement, a confused announcement with no explanation, no detail of how it would apply, um, uh, imposing on Canadians abroad and again, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not non-essential travel abroad is necessary. But for all inbound air travelers, as of this Thursday, they have to have uh, a, a specific uh, test, uh, a PCR test, which is a, 
Paul Murray's uh, chain reaction testing, which says absolutely whether or not someone has um, the COVID infection, as opposed to the serology testing, which is an antigen reflection of uh, past exposure and not necessarily of uh, of live infection. But so wait a minute, let me interrupt you. The the PCR test that's fine. It's a particular type of test. As I understand it, it's reasonably expensive. As I equally understand it, depending on where you are, it may or may not be available. And there are Canadians who are abroad right now uh, for whatever reason they may have been abroad and choose to return home who don't even know this. How do you roll a thing like that in the middle of boom? Christmas holidays. Exactly. And we've heard today um, from the airlines, uh, from a variety of airlines and international uh, uh, air spokesmen, um, that there is, no, uh, there is no detailed information on who is going to, who and, and what agencies will be expected to ensure that the testing has been done properly. Is this going to be uh, Canadian airline or foreign airline gate agents um, uh, around the world? Um, in some jurisdictions, you're quite right, the, uh, the PCR tests might not be available. Um, and for folks who left the country before the, the, the recent surge and the lockdown in some provinces, um, they may find themselves uh, unable to get this 72-hour testing before they, they show up at the airport for their, uh, their flight to Canada. I know. Well, it struck me when I read this originally over the last couple of days. Hey, wait a minute. Why don't they just get the instant tests? They may not be as accurate, but kind of like they hand out customs cards on airplanes. Why don't they just hand these things out on airplanes? You spit in a jar, and uh, within 15 minutes, you get a green or a red. If you're a red, they don't let you off the plane. If you're you're a green, in you go, because uh, what the hell? You're going to be quarantined for 14 days anyway. Yeah, well, and there's there's the other issue, and it's the one uh, my shadow minister responsibilities uh, for employment uh, is the fact that the uh, minister Qualtro's spokesman admitted to La Presse last week that in fact people who made non-essential uh, holiday travels abroad coming back to Canada may, under the legislation that the Liberals rushed through the House and which we supported for a variety of good reasons uh, back in uh, in September, um, that these uh, non-essential visits and visitors can return to Canada and claim two weeks of paid um, sick leave while they're doing their two-week quarantine. Well, you know, the whole thing comes together in what I would call a jumble. So I'm wondering what's going to happen on Wednesday. It doesn't look good. No, it doesn't, no there's, uh, and there is still no explanation from uh, any of the, the federal ministers. Transport Minister Garneau made the announcement last week um, without, without any of the details in terms of how the requirement would be, would be applied and enforced and, and um, travelers would be, uh, would be informed. Uh, so, yes, there's going to be, we expect, a great deal of confusion on Thursday, and there is still not any explanation to the air industry, which has been in limbo, as you know, at, at great cost to them and to the Canadian economy because of the government's resistance to bring in the rapid testing in Canada at airports, as you just uh, as you just outlined, um, that would reduce, as we see in Alberta, the quarantine by 
more than half of the 14 required days of of, uh, of isolation. What so, a different country it would have been, Peter, if back in February, late February, early March, they had said we're shutting the airports all down except for flights that do not carry passengers, in other words, cargo flights, until we can put in a, um, a reasonable testing program that makes sure we don't allow people in with the disease. But nothing. And now all of a sudden you've got three days to get prepped and there are people who aren't going to make it. Well, I think the government is finally realizing that this is a big issue, and the fact of uh, of uh, non-essential travel, as well as the scores of aircraft that have landed uh, in Canada in the last few weeks alone, carrying COVID-infected passengers who tested positive carrying COVID on arrival in Canada. Um, so they've gone to this PCR, the pre-departure uh, testing, um, but it's being done in a very haphazard and a very, uh, in a very confusing way for, for everyone, for the airlines, for the passengers, for health authorities, and then again with the two-week quarantine in place uh, here in Canada. Well, I wish you and your colleagues in the opposition great success in doing what you're doing right now, which is bringing it to public light, because uh, they're going to have a mess on Wednesday. And those of us who uh, who choose to or have to travel, much less those of us who are away and have to come back and aren't even hearing this, are going to be beset with all kinds of problems on Wednesday. I thank you for taking the time, Peter. Well, we're asking for clarity, and, uh, and thank you for, uh, for calling. Always a pleasure. Honorable Peter Kent, Shadow Minister for Employment, Workforce Development, and Disability Inclusion, joining us here to talk a little bit about the testing. We're going to flip uh, gears right now, and we're going to be joined by uh, the Green Party of Canada's leader, Anami Paul, who's with us on the line to talk about a town hall that I guess, uh, Ms. Paul, you have just held with regard to Canada's long-term care facilities. That's right, that's right. We had um, our MP Paul Manley and also a panel of, of experts on long-term care. It was, it was um, a very moving, and also we have had uh, the, the first-hand experiences of, of people who have loved ones in long-term care. It was a very moving but also uh, inspiring session that we had. This is a rather interesting turn of events to me because you are really the first party to, in a meaningful way, speak out at the national level. Are you suggesting that the federal government should get involved in the long-term care industry? What, would they, what we're saying as a party, and we've been saying this for, for, for years now, is that long-term care is part of health care. We need a universal long-term care system either modeled after or under the Canada Health Act. And these experts uh, from across the country today who who study and work in this area, the representatives of our nurses associations, they want the same thing. Well, it's kind of an interesting conundrum you're in because, as you well know, the Canada Health Act is uh, the act that governs what the federal uh, government uh, does by way of involvement in health and how it funds health. But the administration of provincial health plans is indeed a under the under a provincial health ministry in every case, and a minister of health and minister of long term care, as it happens in the case of Ontario. Now we know we've got a lot of problems. I said uh, probably an hour ago you weren't with us, but on the program. We're talking about long-term care because it's such an, uh, a, a difficult subject right now. It's not particular to Ontario. And I don't, by the way, excuse Ontario in any way by saying that. But we have this problem across the country. 
We absolutely do. This is this is a national crisis. Canada ranks second in the world in terms of the proportion of debt, COVID deaths that have happened in long-term care. So this is an area that we across the country have underfunded, underinvested in for, and under and and really not paid attention to for many years. And we are seeing the devastating human cost uh, that we're all paying for that. And so all of the reasons that we came together to create a Canada Health Act and to set national standards and to list conditions for receiving federal contributions, those all apply to long-term care. It should always have been part of our health care system and our health act. We need to undo uh, that that original mistake. Uh, and it's really the only way to prevent these kind of devastating losses that we're seeing. Anime Paul, the leader of the Green Party of Canada. It's an interesting um, presentation that you make. It's clear that you do have experts who are with you and behind you on this. The power that you exert in Parliament, if, if Parliament were even meeting at this point, is at this point minimal. What are you going to do to try to drive this home? We're going to continue to do the sorts of things that we did today. Uh, this is something where the people of Canada need to say enough. Uh, they need to say that we are not going to allow thousands more of our most vulnerable people to die unnecessarily in long-term care. We are not going to continue to lead the world in uh, COVID-19 deaths within long-term care. And we are going to demand that our elected officials, whichever political party they belong to, make this an urgent priority. It's a humanitarian crisis. It has all the hallmarks of one. And so it is really now for the public to demand the kind of, of, of um, respectful, dignified service for people in long-term care that they deserve. So the idea is you keep banging the drum and you uh, get behind people who are ready to push their government representatives to do the right thing at the provincial level. Is that it? Provincial and the federal level, this is, again, our, our not just our solution, but the experts, the medical association, the nurses' association, uh, the gerontology um, um, specialist, the National Institute on Aging. All of these people want to see a national, universal, long-term care system modeled after or under the Canada Health Act. So that is something that will involve the provinces and also the federal government. They should be sitting down on an urgent basis to talk about how that system would be designed. Uh, and in the interim, they need to deal with the humanitarian crisis we're facing because we are seeing hundreds of deaths in long-term care in this second wave. Uh, and they need to um, put the, the, the steps in place, vaccination, increases in staffing, um, extra support so that we can bring those deaths down. Interesting idea, and I wish you well. Anami Paul, Green Party leader, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Anami Paul uh, of the Green Party. I'm sure we'll hear more from her. I am Peter Sherman. We're at the end of the road. Thank you to Mary Feely for content production. Thank you to Rob Trevis, and as usual, for audio today.